Welcome to Sabbath School Study Hour. I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Walper, the outreach pastor here at Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church. Today we're going to be studying a very important topic. It is Lesson 7 in our Sabbath School Quarterly, The Unified Body of Christ. But before we get into our study, I'd like to bring your attention to our free giveaway, Ultimate Deliverance. Um, you can call in to 1-866-788-3966 or 866-STUDY-MORE and ask for offer 105. If you're in the United States, just text SH090 to 40544. If outside the United States in Canada, go to study.aftv.org forward slash SH090. Zero. All right, let's go ahead and begin with the word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the Bible. We want to thank you that you are able to bring your church to unity. We know that the body functions better when it's in agreement, when it's working together. Lord, I pray that you would fill me, fill this church, fill your people with the Holy Spirit, that we would be unified and we could hasten your return by giving the gospel herald that one last great demonstration of your character. Please, Lord, to that end, bless this study. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go ahead and get into our study. Again, this is lesson number seven in your Sabbath School Quarterly. And you'll want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. This is Paul's exhortation about how important it is to have the body of Christ be unified. And so we're going to look at the memory verse here. This is on Sabbath afternoon's lesson. In Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 12, Paul writes, And he, being Jesus, he gave some apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So note here, the church is to function as the unified body of Jesus Christ. God equips every member of the church with a spiritual gift or more than one that they may serve in the gospel ministry. You know, we're told that everyone who is born again enters into the kingdom of God as a missionary. And we're told in another place that the laity are going to finish the work. So if there is anything that we need to get across to our members is to find your place in ministry prayerfully because you have a function in the body of Christ. So we need all hands on deck. So God equips every member of the church with a spiritual gift or more than one 
that they may serve in the gospel ministry, be a part of the body. Some are to serve as apostles. That means one who is sent. Um, Some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the work of edifying the body of Christ or the church. This word edifying also means to instruct in a way that improves the mind or the character. So we all need edifying by the body of Christ, by the word of God. We're going to go ahead and do something that you will be tempted to zone out on me. But we're going to read some sections of scripture here in Ephesians 4, starting with verse 1. Paul says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Remember, Paul is in prison right now as he writes to the church at Ephesus. But he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. He says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you were called. Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is not two bodies. But one body, one spirit, even as you are called in hope, in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. I'd like to draw your attention to Sunday's study. In Sunday's study entitled The Unified Body of Christ, the question is asked, how does Paul encourage believers to nurture the unity of the church? I think this is an important question because right now the church is being pulled in many different directions. And unfortunately, we do not always see unity in the body of Christ anymore. In fact, you can go to one church on one part of town and then go to another church on another side of town and you would never know that they were teaching the same from the same Bible. And so we need to encourage unity in the church, unity not based on compromise, but unity based on the word of God. In chapter one, in chapter two, Paul expounded to us the truth as it is in Jesus, the means of our salvation. And then in chapter three, he described for us the unconditional love of God for the sinner in order to save us from our sin. This is the foundation of our salvation. And so, again, the question, how does Paul encourage believers to nurture the unity of the church. Um, We're going to continue on with a few more comments. Having clearly expounded the gospel to the believers in Ephesus, Paul now turns as he normally does at the end of all of his epistles to Christian living. Um, The remainder of this epistle, chapters four, five, and six Paul will be dealing with how the gospel transforms our life 
in how Christians should live now that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ? And how should we live and how should we walk? How should we relate to each other? Starting with the church, starting with other relationships, and then ending with our relationship with our spouse at home. And so again, for the third time, how does Paul encourage believers to nurture the unity of the church? So I think we have that question lodged in our minds now. Here's the answer. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says in verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness. Let me ask you, is it natural for you to be meek and lowly in heart? Um, If you're like me uh, and honest with yourself, um, we know that being meek and lowly is sometimes not our first reaction. Um, One of my favorite quotes in The Desire of Ages is found on page 661 where inspiration tells us that those who keep Calvary fresh in mind, pride and self-worship will not flourish in them. And so Paul is saying the way we can encourage believers to dwell together in unity in the church, first and foremost, with all lowliness and meekness, then with all long-suffering, then forbearing one another in love, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So there's quite a few, um, quite a few exhortations here on how the church can maintain unity. It's with all lowliness and meekness. Now, let me ask you, If you are not studying your Bible, if you are not praying, if you are not keeping Calvary fresh in mind, will you be a humble and God-worshipping Christian? Um, I'll answer that for you. Uh, No, you won't. If you do not have a devotional life, if you do not have a prayer life, if you are not studying the gospel on a regular basis, you will be, according to Desire of Ages 661, you will be proud and you will be self-worshipping. We see this in the early church, even before Christ was crucified, that the 12 disciples were there in the upper room in Matthew 26 or thereabouts, even before Gethsemane. And they're all arguing about who is going to be in first place. And um, this is anything but a posture of lowliness and meekness. This is actually a spirit of competition. And this is why counsel warns us that competitive sports tears down the character because you just cannot turn it off. You know, Moses lived 40 years in Egypt and uh, he couldn't just turn it off. He had to go watch sheep in Midian for 40 years to unlearn so much that he had picked up in Egypt. And so you got to be careful what you imbibe, what you take in, because nothing, as you know, in this life is neutral. Everything is either trending you and I closer to the Lord or further away from him. Jesus speaks of it in this wise. He says that 
Um, Those who do not gather with me scatter. I know that sounds very black and white. And a lot of times we try to make things so sophisticated. And I remember one of my first jobs in corporate America, uh, I was told that I'm too much of a black and white thinker that I need to welcome myself to the world of gray. And I said, well, I, I don't know that I agree with that. There's the right hand and there's the left hand. There's right and there's wrong. And um, I think I would just soon let the Bible um, lead me to lay hold of heaven and reject um, hell, to hold on to Christ and reject the enemy. And so one of the ways that we can encourage believers to dwell in unity in the church is to have a devotional life. A devotional life where they're studying the life of Jesus, where they're learning of the lowliness and meekness of Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, and do what? And learn of me. Hopefully we're teachable. He says, learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden, it's light. I love this idea that Jesus' yoke is light. It reminds me of Isaiah 9, 6, where we are told that the government will be built on his shoulders, on Jesus. I'm glad that Jesus' shoulders are strong enough to carry humanity, to carry the burden of sin, to carry you. It's good news. If you find yourself weary and heavy laden, it could be that you are trying to live a life of self-sufficiency. And I would encourage you, friend, run to Jesus. Yoke up with his yoke and learn of his meekness and lowliness. Um, You know, I just want to pause here for a moment and consider something. Jesus was here for 33 years on earth. And every time you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you oftentimes find Jesus getting away so he could spend time with the Father and pray. In fact, when he's choosing his 12 disciples, he spends the whole night in prayer the night before so he can have wisdom from on high. Now, let me ask you, if Jesus in his humanity needed to be that reliant upon the father in his prayer life, how much more should we be often in prayer? You know, when we live a life of prayerlessness and carelessness, we basically are professing that we don't need God as much as Jesus did when he was on earth. And whatever our profession is, our practice, if it be prayerless, we are basically, I know it might not always be our intent, but we are basically proudly saying, I don't need God's help that much. I can do this on my own. And I cringe sometimes when when I think how little I pray whenever I'm in a hurry. And God help me to slow down. And remember that I am small, but he is high and lifted up. 
And his invitation is to come boldly to the throne of grace, to obtain mercy, to find grace, to help in the time of need. I submit to you that a posture of prayer is an admission of neediness. It's a meekness. It's a lowliness. This is the right posture. This is why we kneel when we pray. We kneel when we pray because it is the proper posture. Now, if you can't kneel when you're driving down the road, by all means, still pray. But if you can kneel, you're at home and you don't have bad knees, by all means, pray. It is the right posture before God as it communicates meekness and lowliness. Um, Paul says that we can encourage believers to nurture unity in the church by a spirit of lowliness and meekness. Also with long suffering, some versions might say with patience. Now, I don't know about you, but I, uh, I've had to learn quite a few lessons on patience. I don't always like to wait. I was really challenged by a reading of Second Peter chapter 1, that whole chapter recently where Paul describes his ladder, or I said Paul, Peter describes this ladder and he describes it on the heels of verse 4 where he tells us exceedingly great and precious promises have been given to us that whereby we may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And he says, so add to your faith knowledge, to virtue, and your virtue knowledge, and then to your knowledge temperance, into your temperance, patience. You know, inspiration tells us that it's only a temperate man that can be a patient man. An intemperate man will be an impatient man. And that goes for ladies as well. And so when the Bible here tells us that we are to encourage unity in the church through a spirit of lowliness and meekness, it also says that we should encourage unity in the church through long suffering, which means a willingness to patiently endure. God help us to recognize that temperance is the rung in the ladder that comes before patience. You can't skip temperance and somehow just become a patient person. We find in Revelation 14, 12 that one of the key um, character traits of the remnant in the last days is that they'll be patient. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So God help us to learn how to be long-suffering and to be patient and also to be temperate. So these are hard words, meekness, temperance. These are not words that um, you see people on the streets having uh, their arm tattooed with meekness and temperance. It's just, you just don't see that. <laughs> you, you don't see football teams named the, uh, the Tucson, um, uh, I don't know, the, the Tucson temperance pledgers or the, uh, or the Minnesota meek sheep. You, you just don't hear about that. And, and if anything, we see the opposite being imbibed and encouraged in our culture these days. But it's 
unity in the church we want. And inspiration through the Holy Spirit tells us lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. So we bear with one another in love. Um, We have to be careful here. Sometimes we carry burdens that uh, God would have us quickly bring to him. Be careful when you forbear with one another in love that you don't take burdens on yourself and, um, and take a burden that God hasn't called you to bear. I encourage you to run quickly to Jesus and cast your burden on him. The government will be built on his shoulders. It's his yoke. Learn of his meekness and lowliness. It's okay to be able to say, you know, I don't think I can do that. I, um, I need help. And, and that's okay. That's actually good. That's an attitude of meekness and humility. Forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And that's quite an endeavor. You know, there is a lot going on in the Seventh-day Adventist church right now where we see people who are no longer endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And we need to pray for these individuals. And we got to make sure that we're not among that group that is promoting um, unbiblical divisiveness. We have to be careful that we never allow our culture to be the authority above the scripture. And um, this warning is for both conservatives and liberals. God help us to daily be converted, to have discernment from the Holy Spirit, that we will be wise to endeavor to keep the unity of the church, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Um, We have to be careful here. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, Paul goes on to say that uh, there is one body, one spirit. You are called by one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. How does Paul encourage believers to nurture the unity of the church? Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For those of you who like to correct people, I would like to just for a moment warn you. There was a man named Jehu that drove his chariot furiously. And he would say, come and see my zeal for the Lord. And Jehu would go around and he was anointed by Elijah. God told Elijah to anoint Jehu. And he would go around in this zeal that lacked wisdom and knowledge. And he would denigrate and ultimately put to death anybody remotely connected to Ahab. We got to be careful. Inspiration tells us that men are slow to learn that the spirit of Jehu will not bring God's people together. We want to take down the idols of Baal, 
but we want to do it in the spirit of Elijah and Elisha and not the spirit of Jehu. Um, Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between those two spirits. But the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of Elisha has the love of God in their heart for the people. And it tries to bear long and pull the church together. Whereas Jehu kind of developed this bloodthirst where he enjoyed uh, being right and he enjoyed almost in a self-righteousness to correct others and vilify anyone who might be um, somehow shoestring relatives or associates of Ahab. We need to be careful with this. God's not calling us to be Jehu's. He's calling us to be Elijah's and Elisha's. So God help us to pull the church together upon the word of God as much as possible to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. All right, so let's go to Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson is entitled, Together as One in One. Together as One in One. The uh, primary contributor asks the question at the beginning of Monday's lesson, What seven ones does Paul cite in support of his theme of the unity of the church? Now, we've already looked at this, but we're going to look at it again. So what are these seven um, ones, if you will, that Paul cites? What point is he seeking to make with this list? I've read this a few times, but we're going to read it again. As repetition is the mother of all education, we're told. So verse 4. Ephesians 4, verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So as we get closer to Jesus, we get closer to each other. You know, it's a lot like a spoke on a bicycle wheel. If you're far out at a distance from Jesus, then you're going to have space between you and other church members, between you and your spouse, between you and your family members. But if you come together and you let Jesus be the center of your marriage, the center of your church, the center of your group, then you will get closer together. You know, one of the things that's important to remember, you know, there's friendships that are formed. And every friendship has a type of DNA that's infused into that friendship. Whatever you like to talk about, whatever habits you get into and what you end up talking about and doing together, it kind of creates the culture of that friendship, the DNA, if you will, of that friendship. And if you choose wisely to put good ingredients in that friendship, then you will develop the good habit of um, bringing, coming together and allowing Jesus to be the center of your friendship. Jesus to be the DNA of your unity, of your community. Um, You know, sometimes small groups or friendships or cliques are established and they're not established on Jesus. They're established on gossip. 
They're established on, well, we're not like them. We're different. And, um, and there's a lot of talking and there's not a lot of praying. There's a lot of uh, self-righteousness and there's not a lot of humility and, and um, thanking the best of others. And, um, you know, friends, we have to be careful that we don't allow other things to be the center of our life, whether it be our marriage, whether it be our home, whether it be our church, whether it be our cliques and our small groups. We got to be careful that we allow Jesus to bring us together as one. Now, this is a difficult endeavor because um, the enemy will see to it that... um, that there are many opportunities for disagreement, many opportunities for offense, many opportunities for, um, yeah, people to get hurt. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of times people have a hard time forgiving each other. And this is why we're told that at communion time, we are to examine ourselves and prepare for communion where we have unity. Uh, Communion is from a Latin derivative. It basically means come with union. It's with union. It's also where we also get the same word community, with unity. And, um, you know, Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11, thereabouts 23 through 28, that as often as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we do show the Lord's death until he comes. It's very important to remember Christ was crucified for us. You know, at the foot of the cross is a very level field. There's no hierarchy structure. There's no multiple heroes in the plan of salvation. There's just one hero, and it's not us. The hero's name is Jesus. And when we humble ourselves at the foot of the cross, then we find, like Paul's saying here, there's one body. There's one spirit. There's one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. And so it's interesting that the disciples, after Christ was crucified and all their selfish ambition was dashed, the Bible then describes them in the upper room once again. And instead of fighting in a competitive spirit over who was number one, who is going to be posturing appropriately on the right hand and the left hand, we find them of perfect unity in one accord in Acts chapter 2. They have all things in common. They're sharing everything here. You can have some of my food here. You can have, do you need some money here? You can have my tunic here. You can have what I have extra. You can have it. You know, when you have Christ and him crucified and you are crucified with Christ and you are converted, we transition from a a philosophy of scarcity to a philosophy of abundance. And when we have Christ, we have enough. And we don't have to vie for position. We can be contented with whatever lowly position. 
And this type of meekness and humility brings us together in oneness, in the spirit of unity, not on compromise, but on the power of the gospel, on the power of God's written word. This is how we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the change of our heart. And um, this is what God is wanting to accomplish in his church. In fact, the Bible says that God's church is going to give a final demonstration of the character of God. Revelation 18 says the mighty angel, his glory will lighten the whole earth with his glory. And then God will call his people out of Babylon and his people will be brought together. And when the Bible speaks of glory, it's speaking of Christ's character. When Moses said, show me your glory, God said to Moses, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. And so it's important for the church to demonstrate the glory of Jesus Christ, the beauty of his character. Friends, it's vitally important that we unify upon the scripture. We unify upon the gospel and we each one daily endeavor to be crucified with Christ that we're no longer vying for the ascendancy, but we're contented in the low position of just being a humble servant, yoked up with Jesus, learning of his meekness and lowliness and finding rest, ironically, in an instrument of labor. It's fascinating to me. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Tuesday's lesson is entitled The Exalted Christ, The Giver of Gifts. Um, the exalted Christ, giver of gifts. The question is asked, what is Paul referring to in Ephesians 4, 7 through 10? Let's take a look at that. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. Paul writes, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heaven, all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I went over two verses. But at any rate, let's back up to verse seven. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So. The first gift that we were given is the gift of Jesus. Christ descended the bread of heaven, John 6 tells us, born in Bethlehem, the house of bread, put in the feeding trough in order that we would take him in. And the Bible says that we were given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. That's quite a measure of grace. Would you agree? And then after the gift of Christ, Christ was crucified for every sinner. And when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. So he held captivity captive. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 2, verse 14, Hebrews 2, 14, that for as much as we are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus himself took part in the same, that through death, 
he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who all their lifetime were held subject to bondage. So Christ descending from heaven, living a perfectly righteous life in human flesh, he accomplished what Adam and no other man ever accomplished. He accomplished perfect obedience to the law of God, perfect righteousness in human flesh, and then he died on the cross in our place. Hallelujah. And I love what Paul says here. He says in verse 8, Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. I love that play on words. You know, the devil wants to captivate us in sin. In fact, Isaiah 14, verse 17 says that one day we will narrowly look upon Satan. Not that that's something we look forward to, but one day we will narrowly look upon him and say, is this the man? This is the man that made the earth tremble and destroyed the cities thereof and wouldn't set his prisoners at liberty. Satan does not let his addicts go free. He wants to make you an addict from the cradle to the grave, an addict to sin. And I love that the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he was crucified on the cross, he regained the dominion that Adam lost. He took the curse, the crown of thorns on himself, and he led captivity captive. I love that play on words that Paul uses. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. Beautiful. And then he gave gifts unto men. The Bible says he goes up to heaven. He tells his disciples in Acts 1, wait here in Jerusalem until you receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then you shall have power, dunamis, where you can be my martyrs, my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then he goes to heaven. The angels tell him, uh, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who went up into heaven shall so come in like manner. And so they went and they prayed for 10 days. And on the 50th day after Passover, Jesus gave the gift of the Holy Spirit. His sacrifice was accepted before the Father. Jesus is now the representative of the human race before the Father. The covenant between God and man can't be broken because Jesus established the everlasting covenant in his own blood. And now he represents us. He ever lives to intercede in our behalf. Hallelujah. And um, I love this verse eight. When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts unto men. I hope you have room in your life for the gift of Jesus, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have room, if you're hoarding, get rid of stuff. Open the door. Let him come in. He's got a lot he wants to give you. Hallelujah. Verse nine. Now he that ascended, was it not him that first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Yes, that's right. He that descended is also the same that ascended up above all heavens that he might fill all things. So 
So what is Paul referring to here in these four verses of 7, 8, 9, and 10? Paul is talking about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the diversity of spiritual gifts that God gives to the church. God gives gifts to the individual Christian and he gives gifts to the church. You know, all I can say is never say never. I, I am a little bit leery of spiritual gifts assessment tests because as a pastor over the last 17 years, I've used them and I've found that, um, you know, you can have an atheist take a spiritual gift assessment test and, and it'll come back and say that they have the gift of knowledge. And I'm like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. You don't have the gift of knowledge if you don't believe in Jesus. And so sometimes these spiritual gifts inventory tests can be nothing other than some sort of psychological determinism some sort of self-actualization. Now, I suggest to you that the best way to learn what your spiritual gift is, is to pray and to ask the Lord to show you where he's calling you to serve. And never say never. Because remember, Paul knew everything about Judaism and God called him to go and work with the Gentiles. And so um, the Lord will let you know as you serve him what your spiritual gift is. It'll be confirmed You'll have multiple witnesses come to you and confirm that uh, he gets all the glory. But just be careful that you don't try to do to determine what your spiritual gift is. Uh, we don't use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us. OK, so let's not get it twisted. And uh, yeah, just be a humble, meek recipient of God's gifts. Don't tell God how to gift you. <laughs> That's a little bit uh, a twisted modern day entitlement. So be careful about that. Um, at any rate, let's go to Wednesday's. No, no, no. Tuesday's lesson. There's a quote from the spirit of prophecy from 158. You shall receive power. Inspiration tells us Christ ascended on high, leading captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. When after Christ's ascension, the spirit came down as promised like a rushing mighty wind, filling the whole place where the disciples were assembled. And what was the effect? Thousands were converted in a day. I would say that is effective church growth. Um, without all the gymnastics of um, game playing, it's just a bunch of humble people converted by the gospel, unifying themselves, praying together, and God honors that posture, fills them with the early rain, and then thousands are converted in a day. Um, you think God could do the same today? I think he could. I think he will. The question is, are we ready to receive the Holy Spirit? Are we ready to receive the thousands of converts that come in from Babylon? Wednesday's lesson. Gifts of the exalted Jesus. Again, following this motif of gifts, uh, the primary contributor says, drawing on Psalm 68, 18, Paul has just described the risen, exalted, conquering Jesus as giving gifts to his children or his people from on high. What gifts does the exalted Jesus give? And for what purpose? 
So let's first read Psalm 68, 18. Psalm 68, 18 says, Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men. Yes, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Again, God wants to dwell close to us. And how he accomplishes this is by ascending on high. He leads captivity captive. He's destroyed death. Um, Thou hast received gifts for men. Yes, even for the rebellious. That the Lord God might dwell among them. Hallelujah. So God gives these gifts to us. He's received these gifts for us. And he gives them to us that he may dwell amongst us even in us through the Holy Spirit. So what gifts does the exalted Jesus give and for what purpose? Going back to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, and he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this is Christ's five part ministry in the church. You have apostles, you have prophets. You have evangelists, you have pastors, you have teachers. I would say these are good gifts that God has given the body of Christ. An apostle is one who is sent. So in the early Advent movement, the paid clergy were more like Paul, the apostle. They would go and do evangelism and set up churches and plant churches and they were sent. And it was kind of a rigorous Uh, pace that they kept they were on the go and then we have prophets the spirit of prophecy propheo in the greek means to speak the words of god we um oftentimes um, god help us to not speak our own words but to speak the words of god evangelist an evangelist is another way of saying the Greek word euangelion. The V there, it was actually a U in the Greek. You, if your parents thought you had good genes and you were of Greek descent, or maybe you just like the name Eugene, the Greek word Eugene means good genes. Well, an evangelist is someone who thinks the euangelion is good. It means good message. And... Um, An evangelist is someone that is so filled with the good message of Jesus that they can't keep it to themselves and God gives them a gift to share it with many people. And uh, we have some people here in our local church here that are blessed with the gift of evangelism. Tremendous evangelists. It's just exciting to see the Lord work. And some as pastors... Now, this is where we sometimes 
uh, are slow to realize this, but a pastor is oftentimes very similar. The Greek word for an elder and a pastor are very close to the same. And friends, it's going to be the laity that finished the work. And so I hope that we um, make room for the laity, the priesthood of believers, to find their place in ministry. Because the pastors sometimes are not paid clergy. Sometimes they're elders. So all of these gifts given by the exalted Jesus are for the purpose of perfecting the saints, their character, our character, for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ, the church. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Are we there yet? No, we're not. But by God's grace, we're on the move there. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. We're going to be talking about Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's going to be the all-consuming subject, we're told, of the redeemed as we approach the end. Until we come to the knowledge of the Son of God unto the perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Hallelujah. All right. Thursday's lesson, growing up into Christ. Growing up into Christ. The question is asked, what danger threatens the Christ-like maturity of the church? What danger threatens the Christ-like maturity of the church? We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Again, the question is, what danger threatens the Christ-like maturity of the church? I'm not really sure what the primary contributor means by maturity, but let's get into it. Verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So, what danger threatens the Christ-like maturity of the church? God help us to not be like spiritual children. Yes, we need to drink milk at certain stages of our development, but then we need to graduate and we need to start chewing our food and taking it in. And Paul is warning the church, don't be like children tossed to and fro, carried around by winds of doctrine. Oh, the 2520, I think I'm going to run after that. Oh, oh, I think there's, I'm not sure that there's a Holy Spirit. This is nonsense, friends. We cannot be carried around by these winds of doctrine. This is uh, tossing the church to and fro. And Paul is warning that we should not be like children carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. You know, friends, if people are leading others to themselves, be very careful. If people are leading people to Jesus, to the word of God, okay, now that is a safeguard. But be very careful when you find people that don't use scripture 
or maybe they twist scripture and then they lead people astray into strange privately private interpretations. Be very careful that you are not led astray, tossed to and fro, carried around by these winds of doctrine, by the slight of men, the cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Um, Paul's pretty straight on that. Last day, Friday, I'm just going to end with one discussion question. We're given multiple lists of these spiritual gifts in the Bible. Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and 1 Peter 4. Just an interesting aside, there's only one gift that's mentioned in all four lists. It's not the gift of tongues. It's the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy. Something to consider. So let's take a look and I'll leave this to you to discuss among yourselves or maybe meditate on between you and the Lord and scripture. But what differences and similarities do we observe in these lists of the Holy Spirit's gifts, the spiritual gifts? We find in Ephesians 4.11, we've read this already. There are some given as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 1 Corinthians 12 gives us another list. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. Differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Diversities of operations, but it is the same God that works in all. For one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. The other the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another the working of miracles. And to another prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11. But all these work that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, second prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And so I'm going to encourage you to go through and read these lists and compare Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. And remember, friend, God is working through these spiritual gifts, through you, to bring the church together in unity. Will you be a worker of peacemaking? Will you bring God's people together on a thus saith the Lord? If you will, God will work through you mightily to bring people to Jesus. May God bless you in this most important 
effort that the church needs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you long to bring to the church. Not some sort of unity on a false ecumenical movement, but a unity based on scripture. A unity where God's people are crucified with Christ. They follow the lamb whithersoever he goes, even into the most holy place. And they're unified as they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you write the law in their hearts and in their minds. And you fill them with the faith of Jesus. May we each one be among that number that are not pulling apart from Christ, but are pressing in together to Christ and him crucified. To that end, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, friends. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want. And most important, to share it with others.